Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and uh, welcome to our live streaming uh, teaching today. It's on Hanukkah and the war between light and darkness. So uh, if you remember, and we've talked about this for the last couple of weeks, by the first century, Hanukkah also became known as the festival of light. It was all about light. The, the Jewish people understood the idea that God is light and that the Messiah brings that light into our world. And this light of God brings the revelation of God, the life of God, the salvation of God, and the judgment of God. In fact, there are ancient prophecies concerning the Messiah, the light of God, that when he comes, he will crush the head of the serpent. So the big question is this, seeing that Yeshua is the Messiah, the light of the world, when he came 2,000 years ago, did he crush the head of Satan? If not, when will he? So in this teaching, we're going to explore how this ancient prophecy unfolds over time and how it is ultimately fulfilled. Keep in mind that all of this is tied into the light of Messiah, and we're in the season of light, the festival of light known as Hanukkah. So keep that in mind. God is light, and this light of God is associated with the Messiah in Jewish texts. So um, let me just read this to you. Uh, it's from another quote from rabbinic literature. In fact, it's a Hasidic scholar, uh, B'nai Yisachar, in his discourse on ER, uh, and that's section 3 and 2. But I just want to read this to you so you can kind of see in Jewish literature the idea that the Messiah is associated with the light of God. And this is the season of light. So, I mean, there's so much to say about Yeshua the Messiah and all of the imagery of light that he uses and identifies with in the writers of Scripture. It's no wonder that he's down at uh, Jerusalem in the temple during the festival of light. He is the light of God. Where would he be other than in the temple during the festival of light? So let, let me read this to you. Uh, our sages have said this, quote, And God said, Let there be light. This refers to the light of King Messiah. It is preserved there for us and our children until the light of our righteous Messiah is revealed speedily and in our day. It, uh, it is as our sages said. And God said, let there be light. This refers to the light of King Messiah and the merit of our occupation with the light that is good, which the holy lamp left behind as a blessing and life and a light for all Israel. I could give you quote after quote after quote from Jewish sources surrounding the concept that the Messiah is in fact the light of God, that he comes and he gives life and blessing. So this is just one of many, many texts related to the concept that the Messiah is, in fact, the light of God. Now keep in mind, it is the Messiah, the light of God, who comes to crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis, we'll, we'll read about this, but this idea of crushing the head of the serpent is found not only among Jewish writers and thinkers, but also Christian writers and thinkers. I'm going to quote Genesis 3.15, but the quote I'm going to give you is from the complete Tanakh. It's the Hebrew Bible 
uh, that's translated. You can find this on the Chabad.org website, thoroughly Jewish in every sense. But I want to uh, quote how they translate it because I think it's just insightful in every way. Genesis 3.15. And I shall place hatred between you and between the woman. It's a reference in Genesis 3 to the serpent and Eve. God says, I'm going to place hatred between you, the serpent, and between the woman, Eve, and between your seed and between her seed. Again, a reference to offspring, between your offspring, the offspring of the serpent, and the offspring of Eve. Then it goes on to say this, he will crush your head. Notice that? He. Who's the he, right? Who, who's, what, what, what is this in reference to? He will crush your head and you will, and you will bite his heel. This reference to he, he will crush your head, has long been understood by both Jewish and non-Jewish commentators to be the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the one who will crush the head of the serpent, who is Satan. We'll get down to that in a bit. Let me just restate this. The Messiah is the light of God. He's coming. This ancient prophecy in Genesis 3.15 is a promise it's a prophecy that the light of God, the Messiah, is going to come and crush the head of the serpent of darkness. The theme of Hanukkah is light. It's not just about dedication. It's about God's presence with us as symbolized in the light. And Messiah is the light of God, the coming one who crushes the head of the serpent. In the end, it's the light of God in Messiah that dispels the darkness of the serpent's kingdom and ultimately destroys it. Well, let's pick this up and let's start at the end of the story and work our way backwards. Let's go all the way to, to the close of human history and then we'll work our way backward. So jump with me to Revelation chapter 20. This is at the end. This is at the final uh, period of time known as in human history. So we'll pick up the reading, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. In fact, we're just going to get down to the first three verses, and then we're going to pick this series up and, and develop the, the uh, chapter itself as we go into the next couple weeks. The revelator states this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. So, so what is this abyss, right? What is the key and what is the abyss? Think about that for a moment. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It's filled with symbols. It's filled with uh, signs. It's filled with figures of speech. It's apocalyptic. So it's trying to convey through the value of symbol the great drama that's unfolding in human history. So the key of the abyss. If we were to think of a key... Symbolically, what it conveys is the idea of ownership and authority. Remember Jesus giving to Peter the keys of the kingdom, and then later the rest of the disciples also were given the keys of the kingdom? Well, of course, that meant to convey that they were given authority to rule and reign in the kingdom of Messiah. 
It wasn't a literal key that he handed Peter. It was a figure of speech. He was given to Peter the authority to rule and reign in his kingdom. So this idea of a key symbolizes ownership and authority. To what? To what? Well, in this passage, it's to this abyss. And the abyss itself also is symbolic. It's in reference to the realm of the dead. The abyss is the place of the dead, the underworld. It's where the departed spirits are. And then in addition to that, this chain that's in his hand, the great chain in the hand of this angel, this too is symbolic. It symbolizes restraint. It it symbolizes um, that which holds someone in bondage. So, with that in mind, let's read on a little bit more. Revelation 20 and 2. And he, the angel, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So, who is this dragon? Again, it's symbolic. It's not a literal dragon. It's symbolic of something, right? Who is this dragon? If we backed up a little bit and went back to chapter 12 of this book, it reads like this. A great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. This is in reference to Israel, and specifically Miriam, a Jewish virgin, who's going to give birth to the Messiah. All of this is symbolic language that's basically uh, uh, laying out for us what took place in the birth of Messiah. Verse 3 of chapter 12. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. So whatever this beast is, it is enormous and powerful, has tremendous authority. In fact, this dragon sweeps a third of the stars of heaven. Stars are symbolic of angelic beings. And what it's saying here is this great dragon, this great entity, this evil being, with his apparatus, his authority, his power, his angels, he actually takes and sweeps to the earth a third of heaven's host. In other words, these angels are defeated in this particular encounter, and they're cast to the earth. And the dragon itself is there moving through the institutions of the earth in order to find the Messiah and destroy him. Verse 4, I'm sorry, uh, 7 through 10. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, 
who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Think about that for a moment. The great dragon is none other than Satan. And Satan is actually a divine being, if you will. And he has an angelic host that he's gathered. Not much is said about that. I mean, there's just, just not much said other than he has fallen angels with him that serve him. And he is defeated in this particular battle with Michael. And where is he cast? He's cast out of heaven to the earth. And, and I wish I had some sources. I did not uh, uh, gather those. But the realm of the dead, um, in, in some places, this realm is, in fact, the earth itself. The earth itself is fallen. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. This is a reference to him uh, being thrown down into the realm of the dead, the, the very world we live in. So I, I, I thought that was fascinating when, when I was reading this. But let me go on. Verse 17. So the dragon, Satan, was enraged with the woman, Israel, and specifically the woman in Israel that gives birth and the disciples that follow, right? So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, I mean, this, this, this triggers so many thoughts concerning Hanukkah and the story of the Maccabees. The Maccabees was a family so devoted to God. They loved God and they loved God's ways. They kept God's commandments and their faith was in the coming Messiah. They believed in the coming Messiah. It, the earmarks of the Maccabees was a loyalty to God, his laws, and the coming Messiah. And we see that the dragon, of course, continues in his war with the people of God down through history. And this is just another attack on the people of God in Revelation chapter 12. So the serpent of old, who is the serpent? It's none other than the serpent found in Genesis chapter 3. What we opened with today in this teaching. If you go back to chapter 3, under the law of first reference, you'll discover the serpent for the first time. And who is the serpent? It's none other than this divine being that later is known as Satan, and he has come to deceive our parents to lead them in a rebellion against God. He is evil. His ways are filled with uh, lies and deception and described as darkness. And he tries to bring that <clears throat> into our world. And he does a pretty good job with our parents, Adam and Eve, if you will. And that whole thing resulted in so much darkness spreading throughout the world. The whole world collapsed, in a sense, spiritually uh, on the heels of, of this. Good news is, is that in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of that, God promises to Adam and Eve and their offspring, the offspring of the woman, that he will send one who will rise up and crush the head of the serpent. So, in this passage I just read, it says the angel lays hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So what does it mean that the angel bound him? 
He took this great chain that's not literal to bind this spiritual being. And so what is that all about? Has that already happened? Is he restrained, right? That's the big question. Now, when we look back in the life and times of Jesus, the Messiah, when he came, we'll find some extraordinary things happening that initiates this prophecy that begins to actualize what was promised in Genesis 3.15. I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. It says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So Jesus, in his death, it says that he rendered Satan powerless. Now, now this Greek word that we translate into the English as powerless has within it the range of meaning that describes being bound. In other words, what's happened is Jesus, in his death, actually binds the enemy, the serpent, Satan himself, and renders him powerless. The very concept that we look for in, in uh, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2 looks like it's actually beginning in this event of the death of Jesus as described in Hebrews 2. And it gets clearer. It gets clearer as we move down through the text. Now let me jump over here to Colossians, and we'll continue to read about this. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The context, the cross event. Again, the death of Jesus. And notice what it says here. Verse 15. In the context of his death, it says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. Which rulers? Which authorities? Caesar? Pontius Pilate? Of course not. This is talking about the death of Jesus when his body's placed in the grave and his soul descends into Hades or into the realm of the dead where all the other souls are. The realm of the dead. He goes into the realm of Satan, the underworld, and it's there that he disarms the rulers, the rulers of, uh, and principalities of darkness that rule over this world under Satan himself. Satan, who is the god of this world, the realm of the dead. He's over the earth and everyone in it. Jesus is that divine invader who comes as the light of God to dispel the darkness and to take back the key the authority over life and death from the enemy. And in his death, he does exactly that. He, he, in his descent into Hades, the enemy thought he had won. It was his ultimate defeat. And it was there in Hades that Jesus disarmed them, took away their powers. He bound them in that sense. He made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. 
This, I believe, is exactly what is being described in Revelation chapter 20. It's given us a context for understanding how this prophecy in Genesis 3 is unfolding. Let me go on. Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to read down through this. It says, Then I turned to see a voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest was a golden sash. His head and his hair were as white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet like burnished bronze, and when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all of its strength. This is the most supernatural depiction that we have in the Bible. In all of the descriptions that we have of God, this, this is like the most supernatural description. And it's an application to the Son of Man. It's in reference to the Son of Man. This is speaking of Yeshua, the Son of the Ancient of Days. John, it says in verse 17 through 18, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand upon me and saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Now note this. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He, he, he's saying, In my resurrection, I rose up. And I took back the authority of the very realm of death and hell itself. This describes Satan being plundered and rendered powerless. And it goes on to say, how long is it that he's bound, right? How long is it that this angel binds him? It says for a thousand years. Is that symbolic too? Everything else seems to be symbolic. Is this to be taken literally or symbolically. A thousand years. Literal, figurative. Let me give you some examples of this phrase, a thousand, being a figure of speech, not only in apocalyptic literature, but even, even all the way back in the Torah. Um, in fact, let me, give you, let me give you an example. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Literal? Gosh, what do you do if you're the 1,001 generation? Out of luck, it's only 1,000, unless it's a figure of speech, meaning to convey all generations in all time. Everyone in every generation that loves me I'm going to keep faith with them. So this phrase, a thousand generation, is meant to convey all. Not literally just a thousand. Psalm 50 and verse 10. says, for every beast of the forest is mine, speaking of the Lord. Every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, that's not too much. I mean, there's millions of hills on this globe. There's a lot of cattle outside of a thousand. Doesn't seem like he really owns that much. Unless, of course, this phrase, a thousand, 
is meant to convey all the helps. Again, it's a figure of speech. It's meant to convey that God owns all the cattle. So here's two examples of this phrase, a thousand, being used as a figure of speech. I could give you more examples. Uh, I just don't have the time to do that. But in summary, let me just make some statements. Number one, the Tanakh uses the phrase a thousand years as a figure of speech in numerous places with the idea of conveying a very long period of time or if in relationship to things like hells, simply means all the hells. I believe in Revelation chapter 20, it's a figure of speech. Like the chain and the abyss and the key, it's not to be taken literally, but symbolically. Now, I could be wrong. I admit that. I could be wrong. I just don't think I am. So, as I'm preaching today, I get to preach my particular view, which could be wrong, although I don't think it is. Revelation 20 and verse 3. It goes on to say, And he, the angel that bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, the realm of the dead, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. I'm going to talk about this reference to being released for a short time as we develop the series. We're not going to do that today. But keep in mind, he's bound for a very long period of time, symbolized by the phrase, a thousand years. But at the end of that, he is released again and given authority, given back power to do what he's always done. We'll get to that later. But let's unpack this verse. And he threw him into the abyss, shut it, and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. The abyss, as we've already stated, is synonymous with the realm of the dead, the underworld, our world, if you will. And since the first century, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he was rendered powerless, if you, re if you remember. His power over the nations was pretty much removed. He can certainly today still lie, still deceive, and still seduce individuals, not nations any longer, individuals. The ability to sway all the nations like he was given prior to that resurrection, that's gone. He's been greatly diminished. He can no longer seduce and deceive entire nations. If we look at, at, at history, for instance, you'll note that prior to the resurrection, there are no nations of light there's no believing nations, none, zero. You can scan the history that's, that's available to us. And why is it that there's no believing nations? Because at that time, Satan, the serpent, he is lord of this realm. He is king over this earth, and he holds everyone under his seduction, his power. But there is no nations of light. But after the resurrection of Jesus, he was diminished robbed of that power, and, and bound. How do we know that? Because we see the rise of 
Christian nations for the first time, believing nations for the first time, begin to pop up. In fact, we see the rise of Western civilization, which is predicated on a Judeo-Christian paradigm. It just breaks forth. Nations believing in Christ begin to rise up. There's this widespread uh, phenomenon of Christianity spreading throughout the West. It's amazing to see it. It's the evidence that that the evil one has been bound. And that binding took place 2,000 years ago. It's not going to take place in the future. It already has taken place. The kingdom isn't coming. It's already come. It's going to be consummated, but it's been here for 2,000 years. You say, well, it doesn't look like that today. Right? I mean, where is the church today? Where is the the ongoing growth of Christianity today. You, you, it's a solid point. It's a solid point. I'm going to get into that next week. I, th- I think it may be an indication that maybe we're at the end of the millennium, the thousand years, a figure of speech of a long period of time. Maybe we're coming to the end of that long period of time. Maybe Satan has been released. Maybe, maybe Christianity has been declining throughout the world which might be the evidence that Satan has been released now for a short period of time to deceive the nations for one final ultimate conflict. Is that exciting or what? This is so good, man. So glad I'm here listening to myself. Okay. We're going to get down to that and talk about that as we develop the series, but for now let me just summarize and make some application for this week. Genesis 3.15 gives us an ancient prophecy along with a promise that the Messiah will come, who is the light of God, to crush the head of the serpent, who later is identified as the great red dragon, the devil, Satan himself. There is an inaugural fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 in the first coming of Jesus to our world. It was in his death and descent into the realm of the dead that he triumphed over Satan and his angels. And he took away from Satan his power and his authority. He took his keys, which are symbolic of power and authority, took the keys away from Satan. Satan had authority to rule and reign over the realm of the dead, our world. And Jesus said, you're done. And took away that power and that authority as he rose from the dead. He bound him, rendering him powerless to deceive the nations any longer. And we see the rise of believing nations like a wildfire as Western civilization is filled with with the uh, growth of, of the light of Christ. Again, today it appears that these believing nations are now turning away from the Lord and declining at a very rapid pace. Again, I'm going to address that in the weeks ahead. But let me say, without a doubt, Jesus is returning. And when he does, he will then destroy the serpent, Satan himself. As described in the phrase, he will crush his head. In short, good will triumph over evil. The, The light of Messiah will fully 
and completely disperse the darkness along with the devil and his angels who ultimately will be cast into the lake of fire, destroyed forevermore. With that context, as we move into the week of Hanukkah, the festival of light, let's remind ourselves that no matter how bad things get, no matter how dark times get, no matter how evil the nations become, it's part of the plan of God. He's in control. His son has already triumphed over the serpent. There's going to be one final conflict, but it's good news for us and bad news for the children of darkness. Hanukkah represents the few overcoming the many, and we're going to see that ultimately in a way it's never been seen before. Perhaps we might be that generation that participates in that final conflict. How exciting is that? So get your game on. Let your light shine. Know that the light of Messiah has already greatly diminished the evil one and ultimately is going to return to destroy him once and for all. Is that amazing? Happy Hanukkah. We're going to invite someone up, I think Alexia, to do the Aaronic benediction as we close today. And then right afterwards, we're going to go into a question and answer time. So if you want to hang around for about a minute or two, I'll be back up to uh, do a live question and answer uh, session. Thank you. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, May Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And we add, In the name of Yeshua our Messiah, the Prince of Peace, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Receive now the name of Yahweh. Ivarecha Yahweh, Shalom. Beshem Yeshua Hamashiach Sar Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.